0: Let's remain standing and take our Bibles and op- open them to Peter's first letter, nearly to the end of the Bible. We'll read his greeting in the first paragraph. He wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to suffering Gentiles scattered across the Roman Empire. The book you're holding is a miracle, it is God's very word. It was written across 1,400 years by over three dozen people in three different languages. And yet it tells one story of one God all across, those, all across that time because this is God's Word to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. And Father, now we have the privilege of looking carefully into things that your word marvelously and mysteriously tells us holy angels want to know more. They want to look into the things that occupy our hearts and minds now. And there's so much here. It's so rich. It's so comforting because it's you. It's your word. It's your gift. It's your salvation. So give me grace to explain it well and clearly. Help us all, Lord, to walk out of here having knowing for sure, Lord, that we have met with you and been comforted by the word we've just been singing about, so that we trust you and your promises, not ourselves and our ingenuity. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep your Bible open, please, in First Peter, and let me tell you why Peter, the apostle, is my favorite. He might be yours as well. It's a very common thing for people to say that Peter is their favorite apostle. Paul is hard to relate to. Paul was a deeply religious man. In our in modern day terms, an ultra-Orthodox practitioner of Judaism. Not only a practitioner, but a teacher. A leader, an example, and a leading scholar in the, the sect called in those days the sect of the Pharisees. But, once Paul met Jesus... It seems, across all of his writings and across all of his letters, that though Paul often cried and was heartbroken and felt daily the pressure of the work that God had given him and the love he had for other people, aside from that very normal human suffering that Paul is so open about, Paul's spiritual development and spiritual growth seems to be a straight line up. In fact, he tells us famously in a passage that a lot of Christians know and love that Paul chooses to forget the things that are behind him, and he continually strains forward to Jesus. Inspiring, moving, encouraging, the author of most of the letters of the New Testament, but for a knucklehead like me, a little hard to relate to. Because my faith is up and down. It's not been a straight line. Like you, maybe, I've been filled with fears and questions and doubts and discouragement. I've stepped forward with courage and shrunk back in cowardice. And Peter's no stranger to that. Peter famously, we read in the Gospel of John, denied Jesus three times at Jesus' most painful hour. Jesus locked eyes with Peter as the third betrayal crossed his lips. And the gospel reports simply that Peter went out and wept bitterly. The last part of the gospel of John tells about Jesus patiently going to Peter, feeding him breakfast, and publicly restoring him in front of all the disciples who knew that Peter was a man marked by his cowardice, by his buckling when it counted most. And then most people say, well, once Peter in the book of Acts receives empowerment through the Holy Spirit, then his straight line starts and he becomes like Paul. But I find reading carefully the details of the Bible that even that's not true. You see, about the year 41 A.D., I read in the book of Galatians that Paul encounters Peter and that Peter, who had been living and acting like a Gentile and not observing the kosher laws of Judaism from the past, Receives some visitors and people come and are now strict, strictly observing Jews or observing Peter's life. And Peter becomes a hypocrite, Paul says. And even drags other believers into his hypocrisy because he wanted to maintain his credentials with these observant people and have Jesus at the same time. And Paul says, I confronted him face to face. The Bible's a real book. If you read it carefully, you're going to read all kinds of awkward and embarrassing things there. You're going to find out that the man, Peter, who is the basis and the source for the Gospel of Mark, Peter didn't write it, Mark did, but Peter is giving Mark that information. Peter, who wrote these two letters that we're looking out now, this is just the first letter, is a man very much like me. Perhaps he's a man very much like the person you are. Loving Jesus and wanting to serve Him, but often shocked and disappointed by His own fears, by His own sins, by His own betrayals of Jesus and of other people. That's why I love Peter. But when he writes this letter, a lot of years have gone by. That little hypocritical encounter that Peter, you had for fear of religious pressure about... 25 years have passed since that time. That was probably in about the year 41 or 42. He's writing the letter I've been reading to you in the early 60s. He's matured. He's grown. And the same Apostle Peter who was told by Jesus during his restoration that Peter would be ultimately faithful to Jesus and in fact would be killed for Jesus... And that Peter would endure a crucifixion much as Jesus had And that's exactly what we read in church history. That Peter, the half-hearted, was strong in the end. And Peter, the weak coward who denies Jesus with oaths, and runs out into the night crying like a broken man. The man who even some 10 or 11 years later can't stand up to religious pressure and becomes a religious hypocrite so that Paul has to confront him publicly. In the end, Peter was strong. In the end, we learn that Jesus told the truth about Peter and that when Peter was now an old man, he actually died for Jesus, asking according to church history, this is not in the Bible, but it's part of church history, asking only that he be crucified upside down Telling his killers he did not deserve to die in the same manner that Jesus did. That's Peter. Now why does this matter? Because now Peter, from the maturity of full spiritual strength, is giving you, through his letter, to these suffering, scattered Gentile Christians. Imagine the irony of that. Once Peter pretended to return to Judaism because he wanted to curry favor with his fellow Jews. Now he's writing a letter to comfort persecuted Gentiles scattered across the Roman Empire. Jesus can do a lot with a man. Jesus can do a lot with a woman if we will let him. If you will take him at his word and obey him as much as you know, he'll change you. He'll make you like him. Because Jesus said, when a disciple is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And we're Christians, we're disciples. We're not demographic Christians. In other words, we're not just people who would check a box demographically and say, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not Hindu, I'm not an atheist, I'm a Christian, in the very broad and generic western side of the world sense. No, what we're trying to do here at Crosspoint is, be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And if you'll obey Him as much as you know right now, if you'll do the simple things of praying and loving and giving and serving and forgiving, all the things that you already know you need to do, Jesus will do for you what He has done for so many and what He did for Peter. Most of us are educated beyond our obedience. I certainly am. I was in Bible college for four years in seminary for another four years, part of a formal mentorship program for two years, in another program for three years of study and for two years of writing. That's a long time. I am educated well past my obedience to Jesus. But my invitation to you is to sit beside me and to listen to this now old man tell you what he knows about Jesus and especially what he has learned about suffering. If you'll listen carefully to what Peter says before he addresses his audience about the sufferings and the trials that they're undergoing, you'll be better prepared for your own. You'll discover what countless Christians have discovered across human history, that when you go through suffering, you do not go alone, that the Lord who loves you and came to die for you will walk beside you and sit with you in your grief, and pull you out on the other side because the God who loves you has great mercy for you. Look with me again in 1 Peter chapter 1. Before Peter speaks of all this suffering, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a pretty surprising thing to say to suffering people. Especially with all the suffering that Peter himself has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the world is Peter praising God before the suffering is addressed? Because if you look in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, what's your Bible say? Grieved. Grieved through various trials. Right now, it's a time of grief. Right now, it's a time of testing. Right now, is a time of suffering. But Peter begins his letter with a blessing to God. A praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why can praise rise even when we're suffering? According to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, it's all about the resurrection. The resurrection speaks against cancer. It speaks against sin. It speaks against human failure and frailty. It speaks against the self-centeredness that first drew us off into our own path and away from God. The resurrection of Jesus speaks against the current chaos and depravity we see on the evening news every night. Peter, fully aware of his frailty, of his weakness, of his past failures, knowing that Jesus has said that for him it will get worse, and someday people will kill Peter the same way they killed Jesus, Peter says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Before I tell you and comfort you and encourage you and redirect you in the middle of your suffering, let me, Peter says, bless God. Let me praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, Peter? Shouldn't there be tears here instead? Because in this same letter, he's going to talk about their experiences as a fiery trial. In other words, what they're going through is not trivial. It's dangerous. It's painful. It's costly. It is costing them everything. Not yet their lives, but that also is on the way. Why, Peter, are you praising God in the middle of your own dark night? Because, Peter says, according to His great mercy, according to the mercy of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He has caused us to be, what's it say? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a living hope. If you have the life of Jesus, your hope is living. It is not dead. It is not in mere history. You have a living hope. What Peter is trying to do here is adjust their attitude. Not for a life improved, but for a life, he says, that has been reborn. Not for earth optimized, but by the present reality that heaven is our true home. Our hope is the life of Jesus himself. And let me just step back as someone who grew up outside of the United States and was surprised by what he found in it when he returned. And that's been a long time ago. But I was born in Amarillo, Texas. Thank you for not booing. <laughs> Even though it's my hometown, I agree with the critic that said that the only good thing to come out of Amarillo was Interstate 40. <laughs> it's not entirely wrong. I was born in the panhandle of Texas, but raised in northern Mexico. My concept of church, Christianity, discipleship to Jesus was Mexican. And when I came back to the United States, first for college and later after serving with my wife and our sons as missionaries in Mexico, well into our marriage, I discovered a very subtle change that a lot of American churches had made in their presentation of the life and the claims of Jesus. And it basically boils down to Jesus as an improver of life. If you'll do these three things, if you'll put these four biblical ideas into practice, if you'll do these nine habits, then everything will be well. You've heard that. I heard the hum go through the congregation. That's recognition. A careful line-by-line reading in the New Testament doesn't know anything about that. Jesus weeps. His disciples weep. His disciples all suffer and all but one are killed violently. The only survivor who didn't, kill, who didn't die violently was apparently spared from murder by a miracle and died of an old age, being persecuted and exiled for his faith. There's this subtle idea that if you have God on your side, life here will be Optimized. And I'm here to tell you from a global perspective, for the vast majority of Christians in almost all of human history, it just isn't true. Just south of our border, for many Mexicans, when a clear, bold life and faith for Jesus is announced, for many people, that's when their lives get really, really difficult. Like a young man in our church who was baptized and went home to find his house locked by his parents, with his belongings on the street. That's what it cost him. The entire reorientation of the New Testament is not that life will be easy, but that you will have the life of Jesus himself from the moment you trust him all the way to glory. And that of course we want to improve our lives here. Of course, we want to use beauty and art and ingenuity and creativity. We want to use all the gifts and all the purpose that we can to serve others to the glory of God and make their lives and our lives better and beautiful if we possibly can. But if in that commendable Christian effort to render to God and to render to people what creativity and blessing you have in your hands, you ever get confused and think that your best life is found right here, right now, you'll be very far from the will of God and you'll be disappointed by what actually happens. Listen to what Paul says. Peter and Paul agree. Read this with me. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Jesus is your life. It's not just that He gives life. He is life. Elizabeth Elliot. Great woman. Now with the Lord. Her husband Jim Elliott went to the Lord early because the Elliots along with other young missionary couples went to South America to try to evangelize a tribe that everyone would, told them was dangerous and would likely kill them and that's exactly what happened. They killed Jim Elliot, Leaving him and several other young Christian women as widows. And from that suffering and her remarriage and losing a second husband comes some of the most beautiful and helpful writing in modern times regarding the place of Christian suffering in life. She speaks, in other words, not from where I do, mostly exempt from suffering in a life that pretty, so far has been actually pretty amazing and exempt almost from any kind of pain. Elizabeth Elliot writes this, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Oh, Christ in me. That's real right now. Paul wrote when Christ who is your life. Not he will be. Not he was. Christ is your life. He is your life right now. And when he appears, then you also will appear with him where? In glory. And we spend so much frustrated and disappointed time trying to make this glory. And it won't be. Because it's been wrecked by sin and only the redemption of Jesus can reverse it. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. We have a whole new life. It's not remade. It's not remodeled. It's entirely new. We have a new life. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then he says, "To an inheritance." Now that makes sense, if I think about it. If I've been born into the family of God, am I rich or poor? Rich. Rich, rich right now? Rich in the world in the, in the goods of this earth? Not necessarily. Some Christians, a very few Christians, are wealthy in this earth and wealthy already in glory. The vast majority of people, all through human history, have been poor people. Most of the people who received this letter were illiterate people. Remember, this is the writing of a commercial fisherman to a group of people who for the most part had to have the letter read to them because they couldn't read themselves. That's the original audience. But Paul, sa- Peter rather says to them, You have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. You already have an inheritance because you have been born into the family of God. And look what kind of inheritance it is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in where? Heaven for you. This is why the health and wealth gospel is such a farce. It almost only always works for the guy who's teaching it. (laughs) Don't go into the meeting, you'll hear a bunch of nonsense, but check the parking lot. The guy who arrives by limo is the guy doing the teaching. The beat up cars are the people who are there to listen to him. And to give an offering in the faint hope that He's telling them the truth that if they'll plant some seed money into His ministry, God will return it a hundredfold. doesn't work. It's not promised. It's not biblical. You have been promised by Jesus that if you follow Him and give generously to Him, your Heavenly Father will make sure that you have what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. All these things that you worry about, your clothing, your food, your daily provision, your heavenly Father says, You cannot outgive me. Give as I have given to you. Echo my generosity in your daily life, and I'll make sure that you're okay. But okay. Provided for. Not wealthy. Not necessarily healthy. Not necessarily absent from pain. The life of the apostles and the entire history of the Christian church says that your real inheritance is something better and something greater than anything you could be given on earth. You have been born again, Peter says, verse 4, you have been born again to an inheritance. You have an inheritance waiting for you. What's it like? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Where is that inheritance? It's kept in heaven for you. Look at those nouns. Rather, look at those adjectives. My English teacher is grimacing right now. (laughs) Sorry, Mrs. DeBoard. (laughs) Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I really spent quite a bit of time just looking at this verse and it struck me with the help of someone who knows the letter far better than I do and wrote a wonderful book about it. When Peter goes to describe your heavenly inheritance. It's so marvelous that all he can tell you is what it's not. He explains it and describes it and puts boundaries around it. Not by telling you what it is. Because it's beyond description. It's beyond imagination. It's location is in the home of God. The very presence of God. Described here as heaven. It's not here on earth. What's happening here on earth? Fiery trials. Grief through various kinds of suffering. Persecution and rejection and hardship. That's what's happening now. But be of good cheer and praise God anyway because... You can raise a voice of blessing and praise to God the Father because in His great mercy, He made you to be reborn through the same life that Jesus took back from the dead, from the eternal life that Jesus has always had and always enjoyed. And you have not only been born again into the family of God, because you're in the family of God, you have been granted there an inheritance. And here's how He describes it. It cannot be destroyed It cannot be polluted. And it cannot decay. And there's nothing on earth like it. There is nothing on earth like what awaits you in heaven. That made me think of my wedding ring. Because my wife and I, we married when we were painfully young. And before she knew what she was getting into. (laughs) Had she known... (laughs) poor thing. She had so many other better offers, but God answers prayer and here I am. <laughs> Nearly 30 years ago, she gave me the gold ring I'm wearing on my left hand. If you know me, you know I'm absent-minded and I lose things, but for, for love alone, I've managed to keep track of the original ring. I still wear it. It's just God's grace. Don't applaud. I'll lose it this afternoon and be <laughs> humiliated. But it made me think about this gold ring that I treasure so much. There's so many earthly things I'd rather lose before I lose this ring. But knowing what I'm like, when we got married, she had the ring which she bought for me with her own money. She was working two jobs at the time. She had the inside of the ring inscribed with my initials. In case I forget who I am, at least I've got to start. (laughs) And she put the wedding date. Those initials and that date are gone. You would never be able to tell that anything was written there. And it's gold. It is one of the most treasured precious metals on earth. But it's changing. I pulled it off this morning and looked at it and it's got a few bins in it that it used to not. It's a little thinner on the back for all the many times I've taken it on and off. This precious metal, fading, corruptible, disappearing through use, harmed by chemicals, ordinary chemicals like the kind you can find in a hot tub that interact with gold and according to jewelers can slowly begin to degrade it. Even gold, Fades. Even gold perishes on this earth. No wonder later in verse 7 that Peter says that your faith is more precious than gold. What God has soared up for you in heaven is so great he can only describe it by what it's not because there's nothing here like what awaits you there. Here's how Paul again explained it in a letter of his own. Read with me please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 right off the screen. Let's read together. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love Him. So you'd be a fool to live for this earth. You'd be a fool to pile up as much money as you can here. Haven't you, hasn't it dawned on you that it will all be taken from you? Your heirs will be left to fight over it. People may sue themselves over the things, sue each other over the things that you have. Your health here in Orange County, we put such a premium on health and we have done such an amazing job through technology, chemicals, medication, nutrition, and surgery to make people not look their age. (laughs) Astonishing what we can do. And if that's not enough, we have Instagram. And with the right filter, you can look 20 all over again. (laughs) And it is a fading lie. To get as much as you can here and live for your highest and best purpose right here, right now. When your real treasure, your real joy, your best life awaits you in glory. Here's how C.S. Lewis explained it in a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Peter is praising God to suffering people because he's trying to get their vision higher. And he's not done He says in verse 5, you are those who are by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. First Peter chapter 1 verses 3, 4, and 5 are an exclamation of praise. They are in the old words of the Christian church a doxology. They are a word of glory and praise to God. Listen to it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why else, praise God? Because number three, we are protected by God's power until He reveals the fullness of our salvation. Three verses, but so much in them. Hey, suffering people, praise God with me because you've been born again by the very life of Jesus. When you were born again, you were placed in God's family and that means that you have an indestructible, unchanging, unfading, incorruptible inheritance that is in heaven for you. And while you're on your way home, God Himself is personally protecting you. Verse 5, "...who by God's power are being guarded through faith." for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Please note the words carefully. Peter's not saying God is guarding your inheritance for you. Peter is saying God is guarding you until you get it. What do wise parents look after with more intensity? Their money or their children? Their children. Because no amount of money can replace a child. Loving parents would be willing to sacrifice any earthly good if only their child could be safe and saved. I've seen people do it. I've seen people mortgage their houses. I've seen people quit great careers. I've seen people alter their entire lives, bring them to a grinding, painful halt so that they can walk beside their children in their own time of need and suffering. Your Savior is a Savior like that. Your father is a father who saw in heaven his creation defiled and ruined by sin and the crown of his creation human beings rebelling against him, running from him, denying him, defying him, using the very intellect he gave them to deny his existence, his faithfulness, his love, his authority over their lives. So God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acted in love to pay the price, to build the bridge, to span the chasm so that guilty sinners could be brought back into God's family. And now the salvation is so great that Peter says, you've been born again to a living hope. Not a new set of circumstances. You have a living Savior who is for you, who is beside you, who has gone ahead of you. You are on your way to receive the inheritance that God has prepared for you. And what God is doing right now is guarding you through faith. The simple trust you have placed in God has deployed His strength on your behalf and He is guarding you so that you will someday have the fullness of the salvation that God has already given you. In other words, we can praise God because God is guarding us until we get safely home. You're not home yet. You're a pilgrim. You're a passerby. This earth feels like home. Because we were originally made to live in it. But then all of it and all of us were ruined by sin. That's why if you read the back of the book, there you're going to discover a new heaven and a new earth. God living with no pain, no tears, no suffering, no fear. Reigning over His creation and enjoying us as His own children. Why can we praise God in times of suffering? We can praise God because we are saved. And according to Peter, it is all his doing. It is all by, Peter says, his great mercy. So you don't have to go out there and strive to make yourself a better life. You should work as hard as you can, serve as much as you dare, give as generously as Jesus gives you the faith to do. You should live your life here on earth for eternal purposes. But when it gets hard and suffering crashes into you, do not take for a moment that as evidence of God abandoning you or God's promises not coming true. No, he has better things for you. He has already given you his eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. He has already reserved for you an inheritance based on his own wealth and glory, and he is protecting you until he can get you safely home to your true home where Jesus awaits you. Have nothing to fear, everything to give, every reason to love. Every reason to tell people the good news of who Jesus actually is. We can praise God because we are saved. And it's all by God's mercy. Let's pray together. Listen, I've been talking to Christians, but I wonder if you're a disciple of Jesus. Are you a fan or a disciple? A fan or a follower, as someone said. You following Jesus? You experience God's comfort in trials? Do you have the absolute 100% assurance of what I've been telling you? That when your eyes close in death here, you'll have a better life there? I'm asking you very simply, is it a no-so or a hope-so for you? If you only hope so, you can be sure. You can turn to God right now and say, God, in your great mercy, please save and forgive me. I'm sorry for my sin. I've been living for the wrong things. I've been living to please myself. I know I've ignored you. I know I've disobeyed you. I've insulted you. I've hurt others. Please forgive me. I'm throwing myself on your mercy. Jesus said, if anyone will come to me, I will by no means cast him out. The problem is not God's ability to save. The problem is men and women choosing not to believe. Believing themselves more than they believe God. If you don't know this Savior, call out to him in prayer right now and be saved yourself. And Christian, this is your life. You have Jesus. He is your life. By his death, you've been welcomed into the family. You have an equal share in his inheritance. And your father's watching your steps until he can get you home. And when you get there, you'll see that this Sunday I did a pretty poor job. Didn't tell you the half of how great the salvation that will be revealed in the last day really is. Jesus, give us the grace to believe you. If there's one person here, Lord, who doesn't know you, May they call out to you in prayer and ask you for salvation right now. And give us, Lord, we, your disciples, give us the grace to sing when we suffer and raise a song, Lord, over the pain because you can be blessed for all that you have given, all you have prepared, and all you will still do. I pray that in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. amen. Listen, if today you've trusted Jesus as Savior or you have a question Find the card that's in your bulletin. Leave it in the baskets on the way out. You'll see some deacons there with baskets. If you need prayer, there's people waiting for you right over here. And after the second service, at about 11.45, we will begin our congregational meeting. I have a wonderful report to give you. We'll look in the year ahead. I know you'll have to make an effort to return, but I hope many of you will so that we can review and look ahead and praise God for what he's done at our church. God bless you.